You know, every successful football team has what they call the crowd. I don't have, anybody been to the shoe? The horseshoe, the Buckeyes? Okay, you remember that. Or maybe you've been to Camp Randolph Stadium, or maybe it's just been a Friday night football game and the place is packed, the lights are on, and you can just tell there's something in the atmosphere. People are excited for their team. The crowd, there's this buzz, and sometimes the volume and the enthusiasm of the home crowd can make all the difference in the world. It can make the difference between a win and a loss. We call it sometimes the 12th player. And in the frenzy of the game, it is really impossible to just sit on your hands and not to say anything. And I want to say to you that the same is true whenever you have good news. Now, I know there is a thought out there that says bad news travels fast, but good news takes the scenic route. But I have found good news to be just as palpable, just as exciting, if not more so than even the bad news. When I was to be a father for the first time, I had a list of names of people to call, friends and family, and this was back before Instagram and Facebook and sending texts, and uh, yes, I'm getting close to the prime timers, uh, but I called the first person, and by the time I called the third person and the fourth person and the fifth, they'd already knew the news. News spreads fast out there today and even more so. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you really have a bona fide experience with God and you encounter the living Lord, you're going to know it. It's going to transform your soul and you are going to be electrified. It'll be so exhilarating, so thrilling to know God and to have hope to know your sins forgiven and to realize there is hope beyond this life, it transforms your world. And when you possess Christ in your life, you can't help but shine and tell others about it. Now, back in the day, George Whitfield actually was the preacher of the day. We think about John and Charles Wesley, but it said old George Whitfield was really the Billy Graham of the day. And back in the 1700s, we talk about excuses. People got out in Edinburgh to go to worship at 5 a.m. You can go to the journals and read about it. People would get up at 5 a.m. to go to church. And this one day, the skeptic of the day, uh, David Hume, who was that uh, skeptic, he, he was a philosopher of the day, he showed up at 5 a.m. to the service. Somebody recognized him, said, David, I didn't think you believed in the gospel. And he says, I don't, but he does. Now, that's what the gospel will do to you. It will make you contagious. It will make you on fire. And you will want to witness, just like the crowd at a ball game, you won't be able to contain yourself. What could be said about you today? You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, well, I would have gone into full-time Christian ministry had it not been for those church members that acted like undertakers. I wonder today if the joy of Christ is down in your soul today. If there's no joy in your faith, I want to say to you that you've got a leak somewhere. <laughs> Happiness is an emotion, but joy is an attitude. 
Something has happened in our culture in the last 10 years where suddenly feelings have been elevated above moral truth and objectives. You know, feelings come and go. Sometimes you're sad, sometimes you're happy. Those are feelings and they come and they go, but attitudes come and grow. And we're talking about an attitude of joy that transforms your heart and gives you new light and gives you hope. And sharing your faith isn't about fancy formulas, great tricks, great technology plans, tweets, blogs, and Facebook posts, but it's what God has done in your life. It's the result of God's story intersecting with your story. Now, probably more faith short stories and sermons have been shared from this text that uh, Jackie has read for us today here out of 2 Kings than any other place in the scripture, maybe outside of Matthew chapter 28 where we get the Great Commission that we all are reminded of to go and tell, or maybe the text that I've lifted up a couple of weeks here in this sermon series, Making Jesus Known, Acts 1 and 8, where it says, Jesus said, you are my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. Well, we've said you are the Lord's witnesses here in Liberty Township and Mason and Westchester and the outermost parts of Butler County. Here in 2 Kings, we find a really riveting story that takes place. Here in 9th century BC, this prophet known as Elisha, and here in 2 Kings, we find the tale. It's an historical account that elevates, evaluates the reign of the kings from Israel to Judah to demonstrate the value of obeying God and the danger of not obeying God. And we find this great story here in Elisha's life. Peace had been secured by Elisha, uh, but it didn't last forever. And if you read the greater context here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you find out the king of Israel held Elisha responsible for the siege of Samaria. And the capital Syria here of Samaria had come under attack from the Syrians, and the Syrian army surrounded the city. And they said, here's our plan. We are not going to allow anybody out of the city. We're not going to allow anybody into the city. And that especially includes food. All your supplies are going to be cut off from the outside world. It was a period of great destitution. I mean, this is one of the dark places in the scripture you turn to and you realize everything that's going on here. These people were absolutely desperate. It talks about the boiling of children. It talks about starvation like no one had ever seen. There's cannibalism going on. People have lost all hope. We're dying. There's no food. There's no supplies. Unimaginable. All hope was lost. And then God forewarns Elisha and gives him the good news that the famine is going to end the following day. And outside the walls here in chapter 7, it tells us there were four men there who were lepers. And they began to reason among themselves. Well, if we go back to the city, we're just going to die. So why don't we just go ahead and give ourselves to the opposing enemy? After all, if they beat us for a while, they still might give us food and we might survive. So they decide to give themselves up. But they get into the enemy camp and they find out the enemy has taken off. They heard the sound of chariots. They thought it was other things, other armies that were coming. And they tucked their tails and ran, absolutely petrified. They left all their donkeys and supplies, their tents, all their food. They were so scared, they took off and left all the things behind. 
And these four men went into the camp. They ran from one tent to the other, the Bible says, and they were gorging themselves on food. They couldn't believe it. All the food was there. And finally here in verse 9, it dawned upon them, well, wait a minute. This is great news. We've got wonderful news to share with all the people in the city. The army is no longer holding us hostage and keeping the food from us. In fact, there's food galore here. We should go back and tell everybody about it. Now, when I read this text, I wanted to say, you know, do you suppose we're like the four lepers? We live in one of the greatest places in the country here. This is a wonderful place. Oftentimes, Westchester noted as one of the great places to live. But I just wonder today, are we telling anybody about it? We are sitting in the middle of a wonderful place, but thousands upon thousands of people surround us, and they don't know God. And I wonder today if you are ready to stand in the stream and share the gospel with other people to share what God has done for you. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you might have life. We've got the greatest story of all time. And when you survey the situation and you examine the evidence, you come away saying, well, wait a minute, there's a better way in this life. And we need to tell other people about it. To be a sinner is distressing, but to know it, folks, is our hope. So one of the first explorers, you know, on the ocean, they sailed around South America years upon years ago, and they went around a place there at the very tip, and they called it the Cape of Storms because in that area, the jet stream and the way things are made, a lot of turbulence, a lot of choppy seas, and they marked it the Cape of Storms. But then came along Vasco da Gama, and he changed the name to Good Hope, the Cape of Good Hope, for he saw ahead the jewels of India. He saw beyond the storms the treasures that lie ahead. And, you know, today there are lots of people out there that view life as one big storm. And I kid you not, there are all kinds of problems in life. And Jesus acknowledged that. He said, in this world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And if you can see past the storms of life, you realize it's just temporary and that there are better days ahead. And indeed, there is victory and hope for you. And Jesus can give you a life of good hope. Now, many say today that we should keep our faith to ourselves. We have no business out in the public square. Be quiet and keep your faith to yourself. Don't get, in, get involved in the political arena. But I'm reminded of the great American philosopher, Forrest Gump. And you remember what he said, when you go to the zoo, take some food to feed the animals. They weren't the ones that put the signs on the bars. Don't feed the animals. People today, I got to tell you, want to talk about spiritual issues more than you'll know. If you'll sit and listen. What's happened in our world over the last couple of decades is the church has become more and more sidelined. We're sitting on the bank and we're not sharing. And there's been this great vacuum of multitudes of worldviews that have developed. So many people now 
are looking at other worldviews. They look through the lens differently than we do. And yet the most plausible explanation is this Christian worldview that we have. People today, I believe, want to talk about spiritual issues. And the effective way to do it, my friends, is to build bridges with other people. The churches that make the difference are those that are standing in the stream and are not sitting on the bank. And so in this sermon series, we are reminding you of the wonderful opportunities we have as a church family to capitalize on things here that we offer and encourage you to step out of your comfort zone and begin to witness to those around you. Just think of all the wonderful opportunities, everything from upward basketball to vacation Bible school, from our food pantry to stepping forward, to all of the ministries that we have to engage people. And we wanna challenge you. In fact, we wanna dare you to begin to build bridges of love and hope to those around you. Now, why do we do this? Just real quickly, I wanna give you the rationale. One is love. Love is the motivation for our witnessing. It's kind of like the lepers here in, in Second Kings. This is good news, they said, for sharing. This incredible news. We shouldn't hoard this to ourselves. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said the second is likened to it, that you love your neighbors, you love yourself. And then Jesus there in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. The great commandment is to love. The great commission is to tell. And if you're not a great commission Christian, then you're really not a great commandment believer. And this is a message that you find over and over and over in the scripture. For example, go back talking about storms. Uh, probably no one faced storms in life like the guy known as Job. But right in the middle of Job, in Job 32, we see the wineskins about to burst. Young Elihu, he described himself as pent up and full of words. And the spirit, he said, is within me, urging me on, and I'm like a wine cask without a vent. My words are about to burst. How about Psalmist David in Psalm 39? He described himself as a volcano about ready to erupt. David decided to keep his mouth shut, but he writes, my heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. We need a fire like that in our belly. We need to be that 12th man on the field to have that excitement to bubble from our place. How about the fire in the bones of Jeremiah? The great prophet, if you read in Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah had been beaten. He had been humiliated in the stocks for his preaching. And in reaction, he tells God, I'm about ready to quit the ministry. And I understand that. I don't know how many times I felt like giving up. You know, today in ministry, only about one in seven actually make it to retirement. And I kind of resonate here with Jeremiah. But the fire in his bones could not be quenched. It's been said that Jeremiah did not merely have something to say, but he had to say something. And why we don't have a similar bone fire, if you will. You turn over to Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, and there you read about the Ephesians who came and they burned their sinful paraphernalia. And you can't have a bone fire until you have a bonfire, if you understand what I mean. Not only is love the motivation, but secondly, love is the appeal of our witness. 
And this is good news, as we find in Acts chapter 4, as Jackie read, again, where they said, I can't help but share it. The apostles had this bone fire telling the Sanhedrin that they could not stop telling what they had seen and what they had heard. It reminds me of how Eliza Doolittle expressed the sentiment of many in My Fair Lady when she said, don't tell me you love me, show me. And that's what you and I need to be doing to those around us today. St. Francis of Assisi, in such a succinct way, he said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I wonder today if you would be preaching a gospel of love to those around you. Woe is me, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, if I preach not the gospel. What happens, do you suppose, if we don't share the faith? Uh, these surveys are interesting, but I saw one here some time ago, and it said 87% of church members agree that every Christian is responsible for witnessing. And it was also a really other high percentage of the people in the church that said, yes, Jesus is the way to God. But yet the survey revealed that 95% had never invited anyone to Christ. 95, 96% must be inoculated from the good news and have never shared it with anybody. With all the education, with all the wonderful way in which we can use technology today to share the gospel with all of our fine buildings and wonderful equipment, we're doing less to win folks to God than our forefathers did. In fact, historians are saying and anthropology are looking at things we have in the in uh, recent times, the advent of the megachurch. And we've got all these megachurches, and yet when they look at the culture, we have less people following Jesus Christ than we did years ago. Someone has said, we're no longer fishers of men, but we're keepers of the aquarium. And I wonder today if you would be willing to get off the bank and into the stream of life and begin to witness for God. Love is the appeal, but then lastly, let me tell you that love is the product of our witness. This is good news compelled by love. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, love is what drove Paul to become all things to all people. Love is what drove Paul to keep preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel, even though he was doing it at great personal expense. 2 Corinthians 11 details all the things that Paul faced in life. Multiple beatings, imprisonment, whipping, stoning, shipwreck, sleepless nights, hunger, periods of thirst. He was in constant peril. You would think that a person like that facing such persecution would stop. But he said, no, the love of Christ constrained him to continue to share the grace of God. What's the greatest thing that anybody could do? Somebody asked the pastor down in Cincinnati years ago, you remember Lyman Beecher, who was probably the most well-known of all the Beechers, uh, but he pastored Second Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati today, the Covenant First Presbyterian Church, and somebody asked him that, what's the greatest thing you can do? And he said, well, Without hesitation, the greatest thing is not to be an engineer or a scientist or a theologian or a pastor or a doctor or a statesman. He said, although these are good and wonderful things, but the greatest thing is to share the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus. And we can all do that. 
To bring someone to belief in God is the highest achievement possible in this world. Now the word go, you're going to find in the Bible 1,514 times. 1,514 times you're going to find the word go. You read it over and over. Our faith, it's go. Jesus said, go to the lost sheep, go and tell John, go and invite all you meet, go and make disciples. Love is a verb. Our faith is action-oriented. It is, as D.T. Niles, the great missionary, said, it's witnessing is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. And that's what we are about here at the church, to make Jesus known. And I got to tell you today that these acts of kindness really make an impact. And I believe that we have a video today, testimony, that we want to share of someone in our church who was the recipient of one of these acts of kindness. So listen to this video and hear this story. Guess we don't have it. Well, let me tell you the story. It was Teresa Rader. And Teresa Rader, many of you know, her husband Leo found out during the pandemic here that he had cancer. They were worried sick, as any of us would be, about our loved one and their health. And one day, as they were getting ready to go to the doctor to hear some news, she was in the grocery store Someone had left a note over here at Aldi's and it said, God loves you. It was a simple act of kindness. And it gave her such immense comfort. And it was a sign unto her that all would be well. And of course, when they got to the doctor, they found good news. You know, God can use you today in a mighty way. And we want to challenge you to continue witnessing. We have a couple of opportunities for you to witness to people. One is, as you know, we started this, this sermon series by giving you donuts that you could take and share with other people. Today we're closing as a bookend, not with donuts, but cookies. And we have cookies available, and this is a wonderful tool that you can take to open the door, to build a bridge, and to share the gospel with someone in your world and remind them that God loves you and there's a better way. And the other challenge for those of you that are ready to take another step of boldness and faith is to begin to think of five people in your world that you need to begin to pray about and pray for, that you can care for, and that you can share your faith story with. People who need to know in our community that God loves them. Will you take these challenges then this week and in this season and be the church and get off of the bank and out into the stream and witness for Jesus. Shall we pray together before we share our closing hymn? Almighty God, we thank you for all that you have done and for all that you mean to each of us. 
And we just pray in this day where we find ourselves with so many challenges that your spirit would comfort hearts. And Lord, give us boldness to reach out and to share the love of God with others. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in following after you and to preach the gospel at all times with our lives. May it be contagious. May we shine as a bright light and point people to you. May we be out of the salt shaker and into this world, seasoning our friends and pointing them to a better way. Hear our prayer, we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.